Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener on our private feed where you'll have ad-free episodes and join us in Zoom meetups to meet other listeners of our podcast community. Go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes. It seems like I'm talking a lot about what Google is doing, but really what our work is about is making the tools to help other people change the world. Three, two, one. My name is Esprit Devora, host of the Women in Tech show. The show means a lot to me. The reason why I wanted to create the Women in Tech show is I wanted to create a positive piece of content, something where people can listen and say, if she can do it, so can I. Hi, my name is Samantha, and I'm a visibility strategist at Samantha Diane CO. I've just started listening to the Women in Tech podcast recently, and with each episode, I feel a sense of empowerment, inspiration. I really enjoy hearing the stories of women from all around the world who are innovating and who are leading in an industry that's typically thought of to be male dominated. I can always count on the Women in Tech podcast to give me that little bit of inspiration that I need to push myself just a little bit further. You can connect with me on Instagram at samanthadiane.co. To connect and collaborate with extraordinary women in tech around the world, remember to go to the Women in Tech Facebook group at womenintechvip.com. That's womenintechvip.com. The best business resource I have is my mentor's private Facebook group. I've never found a community that cares more about one another's success. It inspired me to create the same thing for podcasters. If you're a tech company or startup looking to grow your podcast audience, I created GetPodcastListeners.com, a private group specifically to discover how other podcasters have grown their audiences so we could do the same. Check out GetPodcastListeners.com. That's GetPodcastListeners.com. Today's personal spot is about reading I would love your tips on how do you get more reading done? I was watching this YouTuber, Katie Yu, who seems so awesome. And she was talking about the Kindle really made it easier for her to disconnect from the phone and get more reading done. I don't know. I really love feeling the tactile, physical books. I'm thinking about possibly getting a Kindle. Not sure yet. But how do you make time for reading? I would love to hear your thoughts message me at Esprit Devora on Twitter, on Instagram, or Esprit at hey.com. I'd love to hear, how do you get your reading done? All right, enjoy the next episode. Welcome back to the Women in Tech podcast, celebrating women around the world. So excited for our next guest, Rebecca, coming at us from Santa Cruz, California. Welcome to the show. Hi, Rebecca. (laughs) Rebecca's like, what happened to her? Wow. Thank you, Spree. (laughs) Great to be with you. Uh, We're so excited to have you here. To kick things off, go ahead. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Well, my name is Rebecca Moore, and I am director of Google Earth at Google. 
And my job is about helping people save the world, helping people save the planet with maps. So funny, Rebecca, on an interview I did earlier today, I asked this question. I think I'm going to ask you first so there's no suspense. I usually ask it last. I asked this question, what's a wish that you have and what's blocking you from attaining that wish? And our guest said, I can't say like save the world, can I? And here you are and you're you're like, my job is saving the world. <laughs> I need to sync you both up. You know, sometimes I feel a little embarrassed because it seems, of course, it seems ridiculous. It seems presumptuous, right? One of the things is it's not about us saving the world or me saving the world. It's about helping everybody save the world. So I feel there's a little bit of humility in it. And given the state of the world, we need to have big dreams, right? About doing everything we can to make it better right now. I call it the reverse domino effect. I don't like you know, the domino effect, because I picture dominoes falling down, but I like the idea of the picture of like lifting one another up. So the reverse domino effect where we're all helping lift one another up. And that's what it sounds like. So this end of the interview question that I ask in order to not be in suspense, I'm going to ask it right out of the gate before we even get into things. What is your wish and what's blocking you from attaining that wish? So I'm going to ask you a question back. When you say, what is my wish, my wish for me, my wish for anything? Okay. So I do get that question pretty often. What I find problematic <laughs> about my wish for anything is I find in our community of amazing, powerful women in tech, we always don't think about ourselves. <laughs> it's so consistent oh. how selfless we are. So it is your wish for you selfishly in the most amazing way. I'm wishing for courage. I'm wishing for me to have the greatest possible courage that I can right now, because I'm at a point in my career that I've been building toward for many years. And the work is getting bigger and the impact is getting bigger and the partnerships are getting stronger and my team is incredible. And it feels like this could be a really important year if I'm brave enough to really lean in. It sounds sort of abstract, but, but really go for it in terms of having the greatest possible ambition and courage with our aspirations. And so that's what I'm wishing for myself, if that makes sense. And the block? What is the block in attaining that right now? Wow, you go deep, like right out of the gate, don't you? No, it's usually the last <laughs> question. But it's not right out of the gate normally. But, you know, I figure since, yeah. Yeah, well, I think it's, it's maybe, you know, fear that uh, it won't succeed. Fear that I won't succeed. Fear that... I care a lot. I care so much about, yeah, just about making a difference. And it's sort of like if I'm really going to go for it in the biggest possible way, then there's the biggest possible chance of failure and the stakes feel very high. And, you know, that's what holds me back. But, you know, as I'm hearing myself talk to you, I'm like, well, okay, that's all true. And, and I could fail. And, we could fail, but what's the alternative, right? 
The alternative is not going for it and being safe. And that's that's not acceptable. <laughs> I'm not religious, but I was listening to this pastor and I heard this pastor say that the universe gives us these gifts and it's not up to us whether to share the gifts or not. Our gifts are given to serve a greater purpose in this world. And so like one of my abilities is to speak on stage. And before I speak on stage, I get sick for like a week before. Like I can't, like I am so physically <laughs> taxed and constantly I'm like, oh, should I? I can't do this again. But it's not about me. It's not about my insecurities of how I, I'm worried if I'll do a good job on stage or how I physically feel nauseous from from speaker nerves before going on. It's about my purpose and why I'm there and that I have the ability to do this. And it's to empower people to, you know, pursue their dreams and to believe in themselves. And I really loved what that pastor said, that it's not about you and then these perceived things that get in the way. It's that you've been, you know, it's an honor to have received this gift and, and how selfish would it be not to share that gift with the world? And it sounds like that might be something to circumvent that fear is you don't have an option to be afraid. <laughs> you got to just like serve the world. <laughs> no, I mean, the words you just said are words that I have lived actually very, very much that uh, earlier in my career, I was incredibly introverted. I am fundamentally an introvert, right? And I'm sort of off the charts on the Myers-Briggs scale of, as an INTP, if that means anything to, to you, but very, very introverted. And my first like panic attack was in grad school when my professor, I was his teaching assistant, he's hit, and he just sort of casually said, oh, next week I'm going to be off at a conference and I want you to teach the class. And this was to a class of Stanford undergraduates, more than 100 students in an auditorium. I thought I was going to die. I just, I was like, I cannot do this. I was in a complete panic. And uh, it took me days. And, and it was finally really the last 24 hours when I coached myself, Rebecca, you have no choice. You have to do this. Like, is there any part of you that might want to do this or might like have an opinion on doing this? And I was like, well, actually, I actually have had ideas about how to teach this class better than the way it's been taught. And I could try that. Right. And anyway, I went in the next day and Someone had put an apple, one of the students had put an apple on my desk where I usually sat, which I thought was very nice, and I was able to do it. But I think that maybe the better example was for a lot of my career, I was doing work that was technically interesting, but it wasn't really deeply moving me in terms of feeling like a calling or feeling like I was really helping the world. And, you know, there were some personal experiences with my family that just stopped me cold. Basically, I lost my brother and my father back to back in like uh, five months. Wow, and, I'm sorry. Yeah. And, and at that point, I suddenly felt like, wow, life is short and time matters, right? Like what, how you spend your time really matters. And suddenly I started to feel this channeling, like basically I'm here to channel whatever talents I have. This is back to your point. Whatever gifts and, and talents that I have, I'm just here to channel them into doing, into doing the best I can, into doing good. 
And, and that's when I kind of made my life shift and, and, and that brought me to Google. But yes, I think I, I totally agree with that point about it's not about me. It's about the work. It's about the message. Do we want people to hear that message? Yes. That's the thing to focus on. Not to lean into this, but only to kind of address it for a second. When I've lost people incredibly close and important to me, the one powerful thing in a very difficult situation is I feel that, at least in in my experience, I feel that they're always with me and supporting me in serving that life purpose in a closer way than I could have ever have experienced them before. I hope that's okay to, to say. I can't even imagine what you went through. We've gone in deep here real fast, so <laughs> why not? Yeah. No, I, I, I do feel that the people that have come before give us strength, and hopefully we give strength to the people that will come. 100%. And thank you for being so open and sharing walking us through your journey of how you ended up at Google. I know you're such a proud team member at Google. Where did your journey start? When did you first become curious about technology? Well, I was always a math geek, even as a little girl. I just, I absolutely loved math. I loved math problems. I loved proving math theorems. I thought I might be a mathematician, but then I also loved to build things. And in my dad's, you know, workshop, I was like building elaborate apartment buildings for my troll dolls with like a working elevator made out of juice cans. And so I really like to build things. But then I also love this abstract logic of, of, of math. And it was when I got to Brown University and I took my first class in computer science that I felt like, oh, this is it. This puts the two things together, this like abstract logical beauty of the computer science, but you're actually making something that is practically useful in the real world. And that was it. I was like hooked after I wrote my first software program and it did something probably very boring and simple now if I were to look back, but I was like, this is magic. I love this. That's so cool. And then how did you parlay that early learning experience into a professional career? Did you start out with an internship? What were your steps after school? So my, my first technical job was moonlighting as a software engineer while I was at Brown. I had a part-time job building firmware for networking devices. And um, that was kind of fun because I remember that I was, you know, building firmware or software that actually directly controls hardware. And I was, you know, making this networking box work and turning lights on and off. And there was like one light under one condition that I just couldn't get to turn on. And I, I finally figured out there was a bug in the hardware, which had been inconceivable to me before. I thought hardware can't have bugs, but I reported to the hardware designer and they were like, oh, you found a condition we hadn't realized. I felt extremely proud. But anyway, that was my uh, first job part-time. And then after I graduated, I actually spent time, I traveled around the world. I was mountaineer for a while, um, which is another whole saga we could talk about. But my first real time or my first full-time job was as a software engineer at Hewlett Packard in California. 
And I was building Pascal compilers for the HP 1000 scientific miniseries. Yeah. So it was a very kind of straightforward CS software engineering job. So I'd love to hear about the mountaineering. But before you share a bit about that, what is an obstacle you had in your career, maybe a daunting moment where you're just like, I don't know how I'm going to get this done. And how did you overcome that? How did you successfully overcome an obstacle you've experienced in your career? Oh, I could probably think of many. But one may be like a personal tendency rather than an external obstacle. There were tons of external ones too that I could probably come up with. But an internal one is is perfectionism, right? That I I, I just tend to to really be to be perfectionist and also also to think that I used to think that there's one right answer to things. And my job is to get all the data and figure out the right answer before I would make a decision and move forward. And I remember one time in grad school where I was trying to decide which professor would be my advisor. And I was just completely stuck because they were both good and I couldn't decide and there were pros and cons. And it felt like an obstacle because I was spending a very long time trying to figure it out. And finally, and I, I figured that only one of them was the right answer. And finally a friend of mine said, you know what, throw the I Ching. I don't know if you know the I Ching. Mm -mm. It's called the Chinese book of changes. And you ask a question and then you throw like five coins or six coins and you read off the heads and tails or you throw sticks and it gives you a number between one and 64 and you look that up and there's a message that's supposed to be the answer to the question that you pose when you throw the I Ching. And so I said, okay, tell me which professor should be my advisor. And I threw the I Ching and the answer that came back was everything furthers. I'm like, everything furthers. And then I read it and it says, you have multiple paths, but any of them will take you to a fortuitous destination and just begin your journey and, you know, be mindful along the way and be prepared to make mid-course career. I was like, I can't believe this is such a perfect answer. And, you know, and I, I really still remember it to this day because I realize, I, and I, I hold this to be true today, that many times we think, oh, there's one right answer to something and, and we have to figure it out. And often, and this is true, absolutely true in technology as well, that it's often best to make a good, you know, choose a good direction, you know, put a good design out there. This is the sort of iterate and improve and, and get user feedback, like get started, get feedback and, you know, correct it as you go. I became much less uh, paralyzed after that and much more bias toward action, as they might say in, in tech circles. Rebecca, you and I have a lot in common. We're both introverted perfectionists, <laughs> like cultivating our extroverted skill set. <laughs> so who has been a mentor along your journey? You know, it's funny. I don't know if this is the right answer, but I think I resisted mentors for a long time in my career because I was pretty independent and I also didn't want to bother anyone. And I felt like I should be able to figure things out myself. And it was really sort of 
in the, maybe I would say the middle of my career that I had an interaction with actually one of uh, my, my first boss at Google and I was sort of stuck on something and I hadn't wanted to bother him. And he finally became aware of it. And he's like, I want to help you. Like I'm here to help you. I'm here to unblock you. I'm here to support you. Like use me as a resource. <laughs> it sounds so obvious, right? But uh, I, it was kind of an epiphany for me. And then I've been much more comfortable since then. And I've had really good, you know, a number of good mentors since then where I've let myself uh, just really be open with them with what my struggles are and where I need help. And, you know, I keep being surprised at how much people want to help. 100%. And I know that you're so proud to be part of the Google team. How did you discover Google? And what does your day-to-day look like at Google now? How did I discover Google? Uh, well, it's a funny story, actually. I mean, of course, everyone knew of Google. It was, this was like 2004 when, when Google was really, Google just went public, actually, in 2004. And it was that like quirky, charming, tiny, little, funny company at that time. And I became involved with Google because Google acquired a company called Keyhole that had built this technology called Earth Viewer. If you're wondering, yes, Earth Viewer is what became Google Earth, okay? And in that period, uh, before even Google acquired uh, Keyhole with their Earth Viewer product, I had been using Earth Viewer in my community in, in Santa Cruz and the Santa Cruz Mountains for projects that related to like emergency response and like history and recreation and environmental uh, protection in my community. And, and I'd found it to be this really incredible tool because it had all this satellite imagery and you could bring in information and overlay it and you could share it with people. And, and as I was playing with this tool and building stuff for my community, I was breaking it. I, I was finding bugs in it. And so I started sending these bugs in and now Google had acquired them. So I was sending these bug reports and they were extremely technically specific. <laughs> like, I think I have found a race condition between the client and the server and I can replicate it in the following ways. And I suggest you take a look at this, right? And then I would send in another bug. And finally they said, they wrote back to me and they said, who are you and what are you doing? <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I would love to come in and talk to you about this because at that point in my career, as I told you earlier, I, I had, you know, lost two relatives that were very important to me. I, I, what I didn't go into when I spoke earlier was I made a decision at that point that I was going to change my career to something that I felt was really deeply meaningful in terms of helping the world, but I didn't know what that was. And I went back to school in something called bioinformatics, which is applying computer science and AI to, to genetics and to the human genome and helping to create this new era of personalized medicine where based upon your genetic profile, you could have more customized diagnoses and therapies and so on. And, and I went back to school in that. I got a degree in that. And I thought, this is it. Like, I'll help cure cancer. And who doesn't want to help cure cancer? I will get back to Google, I promise. No, no, but, please keep going. I want to hear it. No, keep going. 
Okay. So this was in this like intervening period where I had, I had quit my sort of straightforward CS job. I was going back to school in bioinformatics. I, but it, even though it was intellectually interesting, it was sort of like, I felt like this still is not quite right. This is not my calling. I don't know why, but this is not my calling. And then meanwhile, you know, living here in, in actually in Santa Cruz mountains and my community was going through, goes through many, many challenges, which I could explain. It's a very rural frontier place. We manage our own roads and water supplies and the roads are, anyway, it's a whole long story, but I was using this, these mapping tools to help my community. And I got more and more excited about the potential of modern mapping tools to help people. And, um, and so when I stumbled on this tool that was going to become Google Earth, and I thought it was the most incredible thing, I thought, you know, this is what I'd really like to work on. So when Google invited me to come in and talk to them about what I was doing with this tool, I said, you know, do you have any idea what the capabilities are here? When Google had acquired Google Earth, people thought of it as recreational, you know, you can figure out where to go on vacation, you know, you look at your neighbor's backyard from space, like, it's just this fun thing, right? But what I was finding is when you're putting the most perfect or accurate or, or like high fidelity, compelling digital replica of the planet in everyone's hands for free, and then you're allowing people to bring in photographs and videos and annotate it and storytell on top of that, it opens up all these opportunities for community activists, for environmental activists, for crisis response. It turns out for human rights, for kind of taking people around the world to places on the planet virtually that may be under threat and telling stories about the problems and also stories about the solutions. Anyway, all of this was like clear to me and I, it was very urgently important that I explained to Google that this tool that they were just bringing out as Google Earth could really change the world. I wrote this very earnest white paper here, just 10 things you need to do that will hit it out of the park. And I presented this talk and these ideas and they said, hmm, that's fascinating. Do you want to come work on that? And I was like, yeah. I love how you wrote. That's like, what I want to do. You wrote the traditional like blog listicle, <laughs> but as an internal like FYI to Google, and it worked, and you secured your dream job. And what are you working on today? What's that look like? That early vision? How is that uh, transformed into what you're doing there now? It's a great question, Esri. We're still on this journey, and we're not done because obviously there's still lots to do. But it's been really exciting to see how these tools are making a difference in the real world. So there kind of been maybe three eras, I would say, in this journey. The first is what I talked about already, like putting this most vivid, accurate, and increasingly near real time, and increasingly including, yeah, not just now, but, but the past. We had a recent launch that we called Time Lapse in Google Earth where we, we presented the 37-year history of the entire planet in imagery. You can go back to 1984 and up to the present and see like amazing changes that have taken place uh, on the planet. So that tool 
has been used really powerfully in, in surprising ways, like indigenous Amazon communities are using it to show how their land is threatened and the steps they're taking to protect it and to secure financial support to strengthen them. The, the Halo Trust is the largest NGO in the world in terms of removing landmines, unexploded landmines around the world. And they use That's Google, insane. Yeah, they use Google Earth operationally to interact with the communities and the communities use Google Earth to show them where they believe there are the, the challenges and then they use it as their sort of mission control for planning and removing, you know, removing the landmines. Anyway, I could go on. There's many, many outcomes there. It must be exhilarating to have been a part of the growth of this technology since 2004. I mean, it's it was a wildly different time in 2004 than it is now, you know, almost 20 years later. Like, that's wild that you've been a part of the whole ride. <laughs> I was thinking, you know, like back in 2000 and uh, I don't know, it was 2007, 2008, I got a phone call from Woody Harrelson, the actor, because it's like, <laughs> it's like, Rebecca, this is Woody. I'm like, the Woody? Woody? Yeah. I'm like, what can I do for you, Woody? He said, I saw, you know, let me, let me go back. I had used Google Earth. I didn't even tell you this part of the story. I had used Google Earth in my own community in the Santa Cruz Mountains to stop the logging of a thousand acres of redwood trees. Oh, wow. And I had done that by showing everyone what was actually not revealed by the black and white sketchy map and the document that had been sent by the logging company to the public. You would have no idea of what the plan was going to be. But when I remapped the whole thing in full 3D satellite imagery in Google Earth, suddenly everything that was wrong with the plan was immediately obvious, like how the helicopters were going to be taking logs over the daycare center and the nursery school and how the land that was going to be logged was so steep that it was going to cause problems for the drinking water for 200,000 people in Silicon Valley and, and in the mountains. And so they were going to be logging within a football field of, of the daycare center and so on. And none of this was obvious from the very sketchy public notice that had been sent out, but it was all obvious in seconds in Google earth. And that, project ended up, we proved that the plan was not only a bad idea, but that it was actually illegal and it didn't qualify even for consideration. And we stopped the logging using Google Earth. This became front page news in the San Jose Mercury News, San Francisco Chronicle, Wall Street Journal, like they were like activists start Googling and, and it was, you know, environmentalists used to sit in trees. Now they sit in front of Google Earth and like, so this, so this is like going all around. Uh, and that's when I got the call from Woody Harrelson, who said, Rebecca, <laughs> saw how you saved the Redwoods. That's great. Like, can you help us in Appalachia? And I was like, I don't know. What's the issue, Woody? And he's like, mountaintop removal coal mining. They're like blowing the tops off mountains, hundreds of feet of mountains. They're blowing them up the mountains all across Appalachia. And it's you know, 
It's killing people. It's destroying the rivers. It's bringing, releasing toxins. It's like a nightmare. And you can only appreciate it from the air. You can only appreciate it from above. And so he was helping a nonprofit called Appalachian Voices that was a tiny nonprofit in the area. And, and once a year, they would raise the funds to fly a politician over these mountains to see the destruction and to be able to witness the destruction so that that one politician could become an advocate, right? And they said, could we show people in Google Earth? And I was like, oh my God, well, I didn't know anything about Appalachian mountaintop removal. I said, well, wh where are we talking about, Woody? And he goes, you know, West Virginia, Kentucky. And I was like, okay, let me hang on. And I opened up Google Earth and I flew over virtually to West Virginia and Kentucky. And I'm, I'm like, oh my God, I see what you're talking about. It's terrible. Like you can see it all with your own eyes. And I said, we'll help you. We'll work with you. We'll work with Appalachian Voices. And we did. We helped them basically do storytelling, not only of the mountains that had been destroyed and people's lives that had been ruined and, and, and so on, but also the mountains that were so-called on death row, like that, that were slated to have removal and to be able to raise funds and awareness to protect them and to get laws passed in Congress that would disallow this type of toxic destruction. And it ended up doing that. It ended up really helping and so much so that I won't name names, but there were, there were institutions that said it was cheating to use Google Earth because that was like getting people too emotional Anyway, I'll, I'll pause there. So, but so there was that. There's, so you're saying you're so when you're this route. So you're saying you're saying that you literally save the world. <laughs> that is what you do on a daily basis. And we covered the Appalachian Mountains. Tell me a little bit about Era Two and Era Three. All right. Well, so you know, we were actually my team and I were down in the in the Brazilian Amazon, and we were working with this indigenous tribe who was using Google Earth, they wanted us to teach them how to use Google Earth, uh, to raise awareness, uh, and to help defend their land. Actually, that, that was also interesting, because Chief Almir Surui, uh, the young leader of that tribe, first member of his tribe to go to university, he had stumbled on Google Earth, in an internet cafe. And like everybody else, the first thing he did was he flew to his home. And when you do that in Google Earth, you can see that his territory is this beautiful island of pristine green rainforest, but it is surrounded by like apocalyptic clear cutting. We've all heard of the destruction of the Amazon, right? And the loss of the rainforest. But in the Google Earth satellite imagery, anyone can see, and this young chief could see, it encroaching all the way up to his land. And even he could see in the satellite imagery places where there was invasion of his land in remote parts that he had not even known about. And he had this epiphany that he could use this as a way to, first of all, he and his people could understand what's going on, but then the whole world could understand what's going on. And, and he came to Google. He, he, he was brought to Google. His life was actually under threat because he was resisting illegal logging. Um, and he came to Google and he said, could we have a partnership where you help us understand how to use technology? He said that his father, who had been chief before him, used to be able to defend the territory with bow and arrow but they couldn't do it anymore. There were too many threats. 
and he said, the time has come to put down the bow and arrow and to pick up the laptop. And he said, would you come and can we have a partnership? Because the Surawi people don't know about technology, but we can teach Google about the forest and together we can help defend the forest, the rainforest. And I thought, well, that's pretty amazing. So we were down there and we were training his people and that's turned out to be a really amazing, strong partnership. But while we were down there also, some scientists came to us and they said, hey, you know, we love Google Earth, we love Google Maps, but we're losing like a million acres a year of the Amazon rainforest to deforestation. And a lot of it's illegal. It's happening in remote parts of the rainforest where there's not good law enforcement on the ground. But there's daily satellite imagery that's available that you could create like a virtual alerting system to help people understand, people like the Surui, but everyone to understand what's happening to these places. But the problem is it's like terabytes of imagery data or petabytes of imagery data. These are numbers people don't even understand. It's like billions of megabytes. Imagine billions of photographs, right? And you're trying to put that on a computer and analyze it. And they said, you know, we want to analyze when changes happened. We know how to do that, but it takes weeks on a single computer. And by the time we run it, the analysis, it's too late. So they said the science exists, but we just don't have the scale of the computing and the, and the, and the storage and everything to do this type of environmental analysis to protect the Amazon. Would you help us Google? And I, I was sort of stunned. That conversation, by the way, is representative of conversations I have almost every day with scientists, with NGOs, with Dr. Jane Goodall, with, you know, actually just many, many institutions around the world who say, we have a problem. We think there is a gap that data and technology at scale could fill, that could could help us solve this problem, but we don't have the capability. Could Google help? And, you know, maybe nine times out of 10, I listen to them and I go, I understand the problem, but I don't see how we could help you or how maps could help you. But in this case, I thought, you know, we have the imagery, we have the computing capability, we're just letting people look at it in Google Earth and Google Maps. What if we could let scientists do science on it at scale, like on data that comes in every day, and we make it easily available for them together with thousands of computers in parallel to turn those pixels into knowledge? That's the way I think about it. So that's like the second era that my team led. I brought this idea back to Google. I pitched the idea to execs at Google. What if we were to build this new global, you know, planetary scale environmental analytics platform initially to help defend the Amazon. But if we build it right, it could be used for climate change. It could be used for like water, you know, management, it'd be used for many, many things. And the leadership at Google said, okay, you can have two engineers and six months and see what you can build. And if you can build something useful, then we'll talk. Right? And we did. <laughs> I hired like a, this great guy from NASA. And anyway, we, we ended up building this prototype. We demonstrated it at the International Climate Conference in Copenhagen in 2009, if you can imagine. And we started getting a really positive reaction to it. We partnered with leading scientists to so turbocharge... Cool. Yeah, their methods and bring it online into the cloud. And and we called it Google Earth Engine because it's an analytical engine. It's an environmental engine for the planet. So that's 
that's uh, we launched that, and it's really being used in so many ways. Really, now it's powering something called Global Forest Watch, which is anyone can go to Global Forest Watch. You can subscribe to alerts. It's literally reducing deforestation around the world. We built a platform called Global Fishing Watch, which is, yeah. Anyway, I can go on and on. No, (laughs) I love it. Global Fishing It's funny because I always ask this question, what's your go-to piece of like either mobile app, website, or hardware? And it's funny because I feel like one of the go-tos is a forest watch. You know, so what are some of these websites people can go to? I'm, I'm sure some people may not even know that they exist. Global Forest Watch, if you want to understand what's happening with State of the World's Forest. Global Fishing Watch, if you want to understand that. We have a project called Project Sunroof. So Project Sunroof is sort of what I call the maybe the third era that we're in right now, which is that we have, and it's very related to the second era. So anyway, I'm getting <laughs> I'm getting too precise here, but but it turns out that we have amazing data ourselves that we've used to build Google Earth and Google Maps, we can transform that data into actionable environmental information to help people. And so specifically, if you think about, if you open, you know, Google Earth and you go into New York or or San Francisco and you can see the 3D buildings, we have this like photorealistic landscape, uh, uh, cityscape. But We can also, what we've done is we've applied analysis, physics, and AI to transform every rooftop and and determine the solar energy potential of every roof, like hundreds of millions of rooftops around the world. Talk about a global game changer. (laughs) And if you go to Project Sunroof, you can enter your address and it will tell you what is the solar energy potential of your rooftop? If we have the, the 3D imagery for your rooftop, so we don't have it everywhere, but where we have it, and we have it in many, many places, it will tell you, right? You have the potential to generate this. And so I think of it as like environmental alchemy, like we're turning <laughs> all this raw data into environmental gold. But really the period where I think we're in now is there's so much data out there. And again, getting back to technology, there's all these sources of data coming in. People don't need data. We're drowning in data, right? We need like insights. We need we need actionable information for solutions that's like packaged up and ready to go. And so I think these things like the the Project Sunroof, we have Project Airview, and we just launched this in Dublin and Copenhagen earlier this week. We launched, if you've heard of Google Street View cars, right? Google Street View cars that drive around and collect the ground level right. imagery. Yeah, I've heard very funny stories about those. (laughs) Okay. We just unveiled earlier this week the first electric street view car, the first EV street view car, and it is instrumented with air pollution monitoring sensors. And it's driving, and and it's in, in Dublin right now, it's driving every single street and it's collecting what we call hyper local air quality information. And we're going to package it up and make it available to to cities, to citizens, to everyone, because it turns out that, you know, air pollution, the kind of uh, monitors that exist out there now tend to be like one per city, whereas actually air quality can vary like an order of magnitude from one end of the block to another. 
and they're like environmental justice issues and so on. So if you look up Project Airview, you can learn more about that. With all of that, <laughs> like I feel like it could go on and on. How can people connect with you? I mean, all this incredible technology you're legit <laughs> building to save the world. I'm sure there's so many more you could share too. How can people connect with you and how can they get to know more about your work or, you know, and to keep up with everything? Yeah. I will mention, sorry, one other couple no, other things. Do it. There's another really amazing one I'm excited about that people in LA, you're in LA, could be involved with. It's called the Tree Canopy Lab. Okay. So the city of LA actually has, I don't know if you know this, Esprit, but the city of LA has a chief forestry officer. This is what my job is going to be in my next life. <laughs> Her job is to figure out where to plant more trees in LA, specifically 90,000 trees. Her goal is to plant 90,000 trees in LA over the next few years and to figure out where to plant them. And it's and it turns out, you know, as you know, LA gets very hot, right? There, there's what's called heat island effects, where there's a lot of hardscape, and there's environmental justice issues that the hottest areas are associated with the poor socioeconomic regions. And if you really want to help reduce heat and have environmental equity, you want to be thoughtful about where you can plant these trees. So we built a tool for the city of LA that is analyzing using AI and so on, all this aerial imagery and ground level data to determine where all the current trees are and then where the best opportunities are to plant trees. And we launched that a few months ago with the city of LA, with Mayor Garcetti, Rachel, who's the forestry officer, and they have a program where if, uh, if you submit, like they'll provide the trees to you. Is, is my understanding. Nice. I was if just going like, to say, can we just apply. plant all those trees by my house? <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> this has been incredibly cool. I'd love to hear more about who are some of the partners and people that you've worked with in executing in all of these projects that you're working on. This is really the most kind of important thing is that I. it seems like I'm talking a lot about what Google is doing, but Really what our work is about is making the tools to help other people change the world, right? And so the indigenous communities all over the world, some of them have never touched a laptop before, and they're using Google Earth to document their use of the land and using it to secure in some cases, land tenure rights for the first time, right? Um, this is happening in, you know, Canada, South America, you know, the Maori of New Zealand and so on. We have these NGOs that we partner with from, you know, Jane Goodall Institute, Appalachian Voices, Environmental Defense Fund. We partnered with Environmental Defense Fund on the AirView project that I mentioned for monitoring air quality. These institutions, we, we partnered with NASA, for example, and the European Space Agency on bringing their data, unlocking their incredible satellite imagery and transforming it into that time-lapse in Google Earth experience that puts 37 years of the changing history of the planet in everyone's hands, you know, for free so that everyone can understand in seconds. You can see with your own eyes global warming. 
it's no longer kind of a debate or something you can deny because there you see the Columbia Glacier retreating 12 miles and so on. And again, it sounds like gloom and doom, but there's also like wonderful solutions that you see in this time-lapse imagery, like where people are building solar farms and wind farms and so on. And so I think the, the key is we do a lot of conversation with these leading institutions, whether they're like researchers or, you know, space agencies or NGOs or communities and what are the tools they need? Yeah. So they can change the world. Thank you so much for sharing, Rebecca, for showing us the light. <laughs> I mean, essentially, you're just building the light to save the world. It's incredible. This has been such a gift to share a conversation with you. Any last thoughts, anything you wanted to share before we wrap up? Well, it's, it's funny that you talk about light, Esprit, because my brother that I told you was my late brother, who was an inspiration to me. He was a painter and artist, Frank Moore. He was instrumental in the creation of the red ribbon as the symbol of compassion for people with AIDS and their caregivers. And he used to say, he used to, to believe in that song. I don't know if you know this song, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Yes, I do. Imagine that music. I believe, I believe in that, right? Like we all have a little light. It doesn't need to be a big light. It doesn't need to be a street light. Just a little light. And whatever your little light is, let it shine. Mm, that is beautiful. What a powerful way to end. Rebecca, thank you so much for hanging out with the Women in Tech podcast to connect and collaborate with more amazing women in tech around the world. Remember to go to the Women in Tech Facebook group at womenintechvip.com. That's womenintechvip.com. Say hello on social at Women in Tech Show on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. I will talk to you guys here, guys, all the things in the next episode. Bye. Bye. Hey, I'm Rebecca Moore. I work for Google. I lead the Google Earth team. I'm based in Santa Cruz, and you're listening to Women in Tech. The Women in Tech podcast is hosted and produced by me, Esprit Devora, With help from Janice Geronimo. Edited by Corey Jennings. Production and voiceover by Adam Carroll. And music from Jay Huffman Live and Epidemic Sound. The Women in Tech podcast is a wearetech.fm production. Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener, go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes.